And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. We'll be receiving our new Monheim Microphones soon, and we're very excited. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence, monheimmicrophones.com. This podcast is being recorded on November 18th, 2022. Ashley Miles is the Administrative Production Assistant at Rupert Nurseries and has held other positions such as in-house salesperson and inventory manager. Ashley has been with Rupert Nurseries since 2013. She has a Bachelor of Science degree in Environmental Biology from SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Ashley is also a certified professional horticulturalist. She is an enthusiast of the natural world. Trees have inspired her both personally and professionally, and she is grateful that trees have been the focus of her career. Our second guest is Kelly Lewis, who is the general manager of Rupert Nurseries. Kelly was raised in the nursery business working at a family garden center. After a two-year vocational horticulture program in high school, he started working full-time for the family business in a variety of roles. After years of traveling the country as a purchaser for the garden center, he decided being a grower was a better fit for his agricultural lifestyle. Kelly started working for Rupert Nurseries in 1994. He first worked sales, but quickly transitioned to managing the then relatively small tree growing operation. Since that time, the farm has grown to over 900 acres and planted more than 250,000 trees. Kelly has served on the Northern Virginia Nursery and Landscape Association, the Maryland Nursery Landscape and Greenhouse Association, Montgomery County Horticultural Advisory Board, and on the board for Trees for the Future. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Kelly and Ashley. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thanks for having us. We're, we're excited about it. Maybe we'll take a minute to have each of you, Kelly and Ashley, just uh, tell us about how you found your way to horticulture, to Rupert Nurseries. And yeah, we'd love to start there and hear more about you guys. Ashley, why don't you go first? Sure. Well, I started out in New York. I was raised in Rochester, New York, and I went to the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry, located in Syracuse, New York. And that's where I fell in love with everything outdoors, everything environmental. And I had internship with the City of Rochester Urban Forestry Division my last year of college. And that's where I fell in love with trees. I loved that experience. Working with the Urban Forestry Division, I really got to see trees at work and how people interact with trees and just the different aspects of the job and everything that you needed to know. And I couldn't get enough. I absolutely loved it. So after my internship with the Urban Forestry Division, I took a little bit of time off. I traveled and I worked on organic farms. 
And I did that through the worldwide organization of organic farms called Woofing. And I farmed my way down to Maryland. And again, that was just such an eye-opening experience. I really got to see all different types of farms, how people's relationship with their farms differ. Some people had their farm in retirement and it wasn't their main source of income. They were just doing it because they loved it. And I saw other people who it was their only income. It was very different. Um, Their livelihoods depended on their farms. I loved doing that. But when you are woofing, you farm just in exchange for a room and board. So you're not making any money. <laughs> and I got to a point in my life where I needed some more stability. I needed to make an income. I wanted a career. And so I farmed my way down to Salisbury, Maryland. I loved the area and decided, hey, I want to look for a job here. And I found Rupert. Rupert was hiring for an inventory manager. And uh, I happened to fit the bill. I knew all about trees already. Um, I loved talking about them. I loved being outdoors and I wanted to be in the area. So I still remember that first interview with Kelly and driving all around the farm. I was so impressed. I was the farm is beautiful place to be. I was impressed with the work and our customers. And I'm happy to still be here today. Very cool. That's, That's really great. Yeah. For me, it was a little bit different. I uh, I grew up in the business. My uh, uncle had a large uh, garden center operation that I started working in when I was old enough to be kind of dragged along with my parents who also worked there. And I did take a two-year uh, horticulture program through the vocational system at my high school, which was was helpful. And I worked in the retail business for probably the first 12 or 15 years of my career. I did a lot of purchasing. I I traveled all around the country buying plant material for the garden center. It was a large garden center, so we bought a lot of stuff. And I got the inside scoop on a lot of the growing operations, being a good customer. And just at some point decided that the growing side was, was a better match for the type of life I was looking for. And, you know, you can only argue with a little old lady over a $3.99 azalea so many times on a holiday weekend before you feel like, oh, maybe there's another part of this industry that would be interesting. So I, I answered an ad for Rupert Nurseries back in uh, 1994. Four, first hired doing sales and then uh, quickly transitioned over to management. And really, that's my strength, I think, is the management side of the horticulture business. Growing up in a family business, we were always exposed to that. Ashley's much more of a, of a tree geek uh, than I am. I say that very affectionately, but uh, it, makes it, it makes it a good match. Uh, I always think it's good to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. And certainly that's the case for Ashley and me. And I think think it's interesting to hear how people get to where they wind up or at least where they are in the present. And each one of you have your background. And I saw that you have your background from Texas A&M with management, Kelly. You took some classes there for two years. One of their first certifications that they had there for people in management, which I think is is commendable. Uh, and of course, having that tree background in the field actually uh, certainly does help up close and in person. So give us a little bit about how your day functions, Ashley, at Rupert. And I will say, I want to say to our um, international audience that Rupert has, they actually have an Instagram account, which I watch all the time because they're always moving really big trees around and they have bare root trees. Uh, they have a whole uh, plethora of types of, I want to say, how they're planted so that you can uh, get different types of uh, systems, uh, the root systems in different forms. In other words, uh, whether it's bald and burlap or bare root or what have you. So I think that that's really an important uh, component of your business. Ashley, what is your day-to-day operation when you're working there? So my title now is an admin assistant. Um, My position at Rupert has matured. It has developed over the years. I started as an inventory manager. Um, So I did that for about five years. Um, I was on foot. I was sizing everything up, making sure our availability was as good as it could be. And I managed a massive spreadsheet (laughs) that correlated with what was going on in the field. And from there, I became the in-house sales representative for Rupert. 
And I really got to know our local customers and got to help them with their orders from taking photos to quoting to assisting with their tours and tagging um, to helping finalize their order down to shipment and follow up. And after that, um, I became the admin assistant, which I am now, and I still get to have my role in all of those things. I still manage the spreadsheet that goes along with our inventory. I still uh, manage some of our sales reports and get to talk to our customers a little bit that way. But in addition to that, I also manage the social media and the marketing. So everything that you're seeing on our Instagram and Facebook. And um, we have a mailing list that we uh, produce bi-monthly newsletters and our availability, all sorts of fun things that are happening at the nursery. When you see all of that, <laughs> that's you. <laughs> that's you. And, and Kelly, um, let me ask you, who makes a decision of what types of trees are going to be planted or you know what what your next line is i don't know whether that's ashley or you but what's the next line because you know we're seeing uh, and i know how's going to bring up the climate situation but you know you have to be 5 years 10 years ahead of yourself and i want to find out about your vision for the future and how does that work and, and quickly just to expand on on eva's question because I always think of the nursery industry and its trends. So maybe what dictates the trends in terms of your species decisions? Yeah, well, you're right. It's a, it's a challenging decision because you do have to look so far out ahead of time. I mean, we specialize in large trees here at Rupert Nursery. So typically our uh, rotation is 18 years. So from the time we plant a field with trees, we don't expect that field to be empty for 18 years because we're selling you know, up to 10 plus inch caliber. And then we're usually buying the young uh, liners a couple of years uh, ahead of time in order to get what we want. So, you know, you're really taking that crystal ball out and looking 20 years ahead of time of what's going to happen. And, you know, a lot of impacts that, you know, you don't have to look any further than the problems we had with the emerald ash borer. You know, we were growing lots of ash trees and then all of a sudden all of our ash trees were under quarantine. And, you know, basically we were removing and chainsawing, you know, hundreds of thousand dollars worth of ash trees. So we take it very seriously. We're, we're slow to add items and we're slow to take items off. We want to really make sure it's a good tree before we add it to our, our product line. We grow probably somewhere around 150 to 160 different varieties, uh, almost all trees, a few shrubs. But we put the whole team on it. We have five salespeople who cover from New England down into the New York, uh, Pennsylvania area here, local D.C., Baltimore. And um, we get together and we look at 10 to 12 year history of what we have been buying. We all are familiar with, with the mistakes as far as things that haven't sold as well as that we thought they should and what things we underestimated. We typically have a goal for a total number that we're going to plant each year. And then we kind of back into that as a team going down. And then, you know, we also take trips out to the growing hubs, if you will, the the place where we get most of our liners from is around Portland, Oregon. That's kind of the capital of uh, where bare root liners come from, certainly high quality ones anyway. And we go out there and we visit. And of course, they're doing the same thing we're doing. They're looking ahead and they're planting and they're developing trees and breeding trees. And we can look at some of the trees that are new to the market, but that they've been growing for several years and see them at a larger size and get their input on what things have, you know, done well and haven't done well. And we just kind of put all that together and, and each year uh, in a big meeting, try to come up with the best list we can. It's challenging to get everything that you want. The liners are still short supply, you know, after the recession in 2008, 9 and 10, liner suppliers, you know, burnt up a lot of liners during that time. And so they cut back and it's difficult. So, we try to maintain really good relationships with a handful of high quality uh, liner producers so that we can get our share. And sometimes you have to wait a couple of years or you start with a few and you build into it. But it's, a, it's an ongoing process. One of the things we do that I think is helpful is each item we grow, we have a sign that not only tells what the tree is, but it tells which grower it came from and what size it was and the year it was planted. So as we go through the field, we're constantly looking at it and say, oh, look, Red Sunset 
maple. We got them from two different growers. We can kind of evaluate the different stock and how it's done over the years. And, you know, so it's, it's really just an ongoing process. I have a question for Ashley. Being that you do the PR and marketing for, for the organization, I'm wondering when you have a tree that is not selling because maybe lack of knowledge of it, for example, I had a colleague up here in the north who said he couldn't move his catalpas. And I thought to myself, that's horrible. Catalpas <laughs> are a fabulous tree. Yeah. Why aren't they selling in the nursery? How can you get that information out to the public, Ashley, that you know gets gets people really excited about a tree that might not be moving? Sure. I think that when people are looking for substitutions for things, if they can't find a certain tree and they need another tree that is fast growing and going to give them lots of shade, but it has other interests like those beautiful flowers and um, even the fruits of that tree are really interesting. You know, they grow long like beans. When you are looking for different subs for your jobs, I really see that as an opportunity to share knowledge of these trees that um, might not be so familiar to everybody, but shouldn't be overlooked. So that's one way of doing that. I was just going to say over the last few years, you know, the economy has been good and, and trees have been somewhat in short supply. And so it opens up to exactly what Ashley is saying. The, the landscape architects and the contractors that we deal with, you know, they have to be a little more open for substitutions. And, you know, lots of the times, lots of people get very comfortable with their palette of, of plant material and it's hard to get them to stray from that. So during these times of shortages, we've been able to introduce some of these plants as other options. Um, it's a little harder to do when there's a surplus of trees and they can, if you don't have something, they just go somewhere else to get it. But in this uh, environment, we've been able to, to get people to try a lot of things like that. And it's been, it's been really helpful. And Ashley does sometimes uh, promote them on, you know, our Facebook page, our Instagram page. And we really try to put a premium on keeping our nursery in a park-like setting. And then we try to get as many landscape architects and people out here as possible. We got accredited with the ASLA so that when the landscape architects come and here, we can get them continuing education credits. So we'll take them on farm tours and we'll show them things like a talpa and say, look, you, you may not be using this tree a lot, but it's a great choice. Here it is in different caliber sizes and getting them out to the farm is, is always huge for us. Oh, you know, I was thinking of as I was driving down the road and I'm in the country here, so I see these catalpas on the edge because they're an edge plant. And I was thinking to myself, how come people don't plant these more? Because they're so gorgeous this fall with those big leaves and the and the fruits, as you were saying. And and I thought, you know, this is a this is a learning opportunity. And again, when you're talking about bringing people to your nursery to educate, I think that's the best place. Uh, hands on visual walkthrough, uh, just like you're buying a house, you know, come into the nursery and take a look at the trees and really get to know them, touch them, you know, smell them if you have to, whatever you need to do to get people convinced that that's a good species to purchase. I think we should charge Rupert with bringing back Calpa <laughs> to the American birds. Well, we're, we're giving it our best <laughs> shot. We grow them as uh, single stems. We grow them as multi-stems. Wow. They're, they're just a great, fast-growing tree. And uh, I think they're getting some traction, you know, it's uh, it's not a it's not on everybody's wish list, but uh, I think they're gaining some some traction. I think Santa should deliver those to <laughs> whoever wants one. I yeah. think they're perfect. They're perfect. They're perfect Christmas I gift. Beautiful, beautiful yeah. trees. They really are, and they give us plenty of opportunity to highlight them too with those gorgeous flowers. When those are in season, yeah. they're beautiful. They're orchid-like, even. Right. Yeah. Especially for po people who are into pollinators. Everybody who's a pollinator should have, everybody who likes pollinating, uh, you know, having a garden and, you know, for pollinators. Trees sure. are just as important for pollinators yeah. as meadow-like plants. Um, and people don't realize that. They attract a, a huge amount of pollinators because they're much yeah. bigger than a meadow is. Well, and the catalpa is a fast-growing tree, which usually makes it a good choice for a grower, too. You can turn them around quickly, so... Oh, that's good. I, I didn't right. even know that. Kelly, just to uh, circle back, you had mentioned when the recession kicked in, what, what do the uh, suppliers 
that are providing you with your liner stack. Are, are, were you saying that they kind of shut it down in terms of propagation? Yeah, well, they cut back on their numbers. You know, they just um, uh, were became a little pessimistic on the market. And I think a lot of them just decided, look, even when things get good, we're not going to increase our production by 30 and 40%. We're going to have small increases each year and we're going to, um, going to, you know, kind of maintain that. The other thing that is complicated that is there's a, there's a, a real labor challenge out in a lot of these areas, certainly around Portland, Oregon. So they're having trouble increasing even when they want to increase. So for most of them, they will more or less guarantee you the order that you got from the previous year, but not necessarily, you know, if you want to add something new or you want to increase your numbers in big numbers, they, they're kind of taking the safe side of, of production and not, not growing as many and not increasing their production each year as much as they might have. I see. And when you've been out, I'm assuming you've been out to visit your suppliers. Yeah. What do, what do they have out there that, we couldn't replicate on the East Coast. Are, are, is liner stock all propagated uh, in greenhouse situations? Or no, I mean, some of it is propagated in there, but I, I think they this out in the Portland area, they've got just the absolute perfect environment. For one thing, they've got about 10 or 12 feet deep, beautiful topsoil. Uh, they just, the soil is just, is amazing out there. And on the west side of the mountain range, it never gets particularly cold. You know, uh, up until a few years ago, they never got particularly hot either. They've had some scorching summers. Um, but, you know, it's in the, in the wintertime, it stays above freezing mostly. They get lots of rain. They got all that topsoil. Um, and I think it's kind of, you know, like a lot of businesses, you had a few people out there and then the, the lead guy from one company starts his own and it mushrooms yeah. out and then the sun takes over and the, it becomes generational. So, but they really do have just the perfect environment to, to grow liners out there. And most of it's out in the field. A lot of the propagation, of course, is happening in uh, cold frames and greenhouses. And now you're seeing tissue culture and, and other things that, you know, is more laboratory-like, but most of it is, you know, is grafted and put right out in the fields out there. Gotcha. With you being in the Chesapeake Bay region, and I know how important the Chesapeake Bay Foundation is for clean water runoff, you're selling big trees. So who are you selling them to and how are they using them in a way that's, you know, helping the Chesapeake Bay area. Yeah. Well, you know, most of our customers are landscape contractors. We deal with a lot of municipalities. Um, we deal with a lot of uh, kind of design build landscape architecture firms. So, you know, we're getting trees out there and certainly a lot of them are going into, you know, a lot of native trees and a lot of them are going into areas that are, are just kind of being urban reforested, if you will. And a lot of them are just going in neighborhoods and, and around hospitals and housing developments and, and that sort of thing. As Ashley said, because we kind of specialize in larger trees, not too much of our stock is going into kind of reforestation projects and, and that sort of thing. Uh, the smallest trees we sell are two inch caliber and then on shade trees, two and a half. So they're going in more of uh, design build uh, contractor situations. And, you know, here in the city in D.C. and around Boston and New York are big shipping hubs for us. Um, so that's where the bulk of our trees are ending up. And they're equally important because they're if they're going into an urban area where they might not have had tree cover for a while, you know, you're not going to get that runoff anymore or it's going to help with that runoff. So you're doing uh, a service to the Chesapeake Bay in a different way. Yeah. And like you said, you know, we've, they're the pollinators and... I don't know much you can do that's more green than planting trees. So, exactly. you know, we feel good to be be part of that. And on the farm, we're very conscious of that. You know, we are we don't grow organically, but we're we're darn close to it. We don't fertilize hardly any of our trees. We use a lot of compost. Uh, everything is drip irrigated, so you don't have these big waterheads with water running off. Uh, we have turf strips between all of our waterways in our fields. So. Our, our uh, corporate offices have our, our lead certified buildings with solar power and that sort of thing. So we do think, look, it's we're in that industry. It's important for us to set an example and be as environmentally friendly as we can, because that is our business. Sure, best practice. Absolutely. Certainly important. And Ashley, you know, how do you fit that into your 
your end of what you do as far as, you know, PR and uh, the marketing end, do you ever bring that kind of content into your PR and marketing? Oh, yes, absolutely. I love doing that. Like Kelly said, that's a big part of who we are. And um, I, I love it when our wildflowers are looking beautiful. We have big sections on our farm where it's not suitable to plant trees. But what we'll do there instead is grow wildflowers. And we just have fields of wildflowers. And it reduces our mowing and improves our soils. It brings in those pollinators. And we also grow a lot of cover crops. So we might eventually plan to plant out a portion of our farm, but we're not ready yet. So we will go ahead and plant that in cover crops. And again, we don't have to mow that. It improves our soils. So yeah, I take all those opportunities to share as much as I can on social media and just tell people what we like to do. Yeah, that's an important, that's an important component of tree growing. In fact, there's a lot of pollution that comes off fields that are not properly maintained. And if you are very conscious, like your company is, kudos to you because it takes a lot of time and uh, momentum for the company to be able to balance both at the same time, not only digging trees, but also making sure that your lanes are are green too. Yeah. And we, we're in a unique uh, area here. It's uh, Ag Reserve. And uh, I think it was about 35 or 40 years ago, uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, which borders Washington, D.C., put aside 75,000 acres to be used for agricultural purposes. So it's very limited development. There's no public water and public sewer. So it's it's like one house for every 25 acres. So you get an opportunity to have a very agricultural feel and in, in, in area very close to Washington, D.C. You know, we're not uh, 30 miles from Washington, D.C., but all around us is, is farmland, which is, is great in itself. Smart planning. Yeah, it was good planning many years ago. Your clients that are coming uh, from the m- municipal sector, um, do you get a sense that, uh, are you getting some big tree orders basically from cities like DC, Baltimore? Are they coming to you for larger orders and giving you a sense that their programs are robust? Uh, they are, I think both directly and through contractors. You know, uh, I think specs have risen. So where they want and are demanding larger trees are being planted, you know, you, you put in a four inch caliber tree, for example, that's gonna hold up much better to deer, to just kind of neighborhood vandalism and that sort of thing. And so we're seeing the specs for trees being larger and we're seeing much more demand. We work directly with municipalities, many of whom now have their own planting crews and their in-house arborists. Here we have Maryland uh, National Park and Planning Commission that cover uh, Montgomery and, and PG County. They actually have their own nursery. They have a 70-acre nursery where they are growing trees and, and uh, using them for their product, but then they still not only buy trees from us occasionally, but then they hire us to move their trees from their growing operation out to different parks and places in the county. Um, and then we work with organizations like Casey Trees. I don't know if you all are familiar with. I was just going to ask you, do you work yeah. with Casey Trees? Because they're an amazing company. They really are. And uh, we're so fortunate to be close to them. And we have a great relationship with them. We've done a lot of exchanges where their management team has come out and toured our farm and sat in on some of our meetings and we've gone out there. I've helped with the the nursery out there. So we just have a really good relationship with them, a lot of respect for what they're doing. And so we work with a lot of municipalities, both directly and then kind of indirectly one layer off. There's there's no question um, the increased emphasis on trees and saving trees in D.C., if it's a heritage tree, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You pretty much cannot take that tree down. And so, you know, developers are having to work around them and the awareness and, and uh, desire to have, you know, more canopy cover is we're seeing that everywhere. That goes to the question that I have for you, Ashley, that when you're working with the company and how, do you make the connections with the outside co- other companies and organizations or does who, who does that? when you're working, say, with Casey, for example? 
who who does that connection? We connect. Yeah, we connect with the organizations themselves directly. They'll come to us for um, whatever their tree needs might be. That's who we're talking to the most. It's not really the homeowner or the owner of the property who we're talking to. So yes, we're um, mostly talking to the organizations, the landscapers. Because you are wholesale. You are a wholesale nursery. That's so you don't right. sell directly. So yeah, and I think that maybe I'm not sure if all of our listeners know that there's lots of different levels of nurseries. There's some nurseries that do wholesale retail, others that just do wholesale, um, others who just deal with larger, as, as your company, larger material that only goes to people who can actually move it, which would be commercial companies. Is that correct? That's correct. We have two divisions of our company. We have the wholesale tree farm, and that is where we are talking with the landscapers. The organizations are coming to us and buying the wholesale trees from our farm. But we do actually have a tree moving division where a homeowner can come to us and we will plant a tree for them. But it's only for our large caliper trees. It's the trees that most landscapers won't have the equipment to install. So that's where we can talk to the homeowners and help them with their large tree needs. And is that quickly, uh, Kelly, when we are saying large trees, I'm assuming that's like over six to eight inches, something like that, from diameter for our international listeners. Yeah, we kind of use five inches where we would typically consider it. Um, and, you know, we have large truck mounted tree spades and, you know, in some situations, even hand digging trees. We can mechanically dig trees up to about 11 inch caliber with about a 15,000 pound root ball. And anything larger than that, we would hand dig. Um, but yeah, five inch is kind of where we would, would, would consider big. If it's smaller than that, you know, we just turn them over to one of our many local contractors. We have a list of contractors who we um, deal with all the time. So if somebody calls us and we get tons of calls because of course we have 900 acres and 65,000 trees all along the roadside of Montgomery County. So people call us all the time. And if they're just looking for a tree or two install, we just put them in touch with one of our contractor customers. I got you. And do you think that the large tree moving is has become more more frequent because people are realizing how important it is to save large trees? So if there's a construction site, do they go in and have them moved for for the contractors or for the uh, builders? Hundred percent. I mean, no question about it. I think in you know twenty years ago, trees that would have just been bulldozed, you know, to clear for the site. Now they're making a big effort to save them, either because the city's making them or the landscape architect's aware of it. And there's probably also just a, you know, an awareness factor. People now know that you there are big tree spades and that trees can be moved and saved at a relatively, you know, uh, feasible cost. You know, everything is expensive, but it is feasible and, and oftentimes much more feasible to save a tree and move it somewhere else on the site. Sometimes we're even moving them on the site or moving them back to our farm and then when the development is done, we'll, we'll move them back, you know, once they're out of the way. So I think you're 100% right. I think there's awareness to it. Or there's a desire to save those trees and sometimes a requirement. And uh, so we see a lot of tree moving jobs that are, you know, just, just for that purpose. Well, um, recent research has shown that large trees and areas that are like small little woodlands are more valuable to a a construction site because of the organic connection between the the tree roots and the mycorrhiza in the soil. And I think people are starting to listen to that because they realize that they realize that big trees come with thousands of microorganisms on them and connected to them. So it actually is like moving a whole village right. and bringing the whole village back. Yeah. Because when you do that, you're actually increasing the, the benefits to the soil that you've just uh, done construction around or in. Yeah. You know, instead of this sterile environment, you know, of a new construction site, like you say, you, you have that. I haven't seen that research, but it certainly makes sense. You know, it's one of the many things that if you ask, you'd say, yeah, I, I think that should be true, but it's good to see that there's some research done on it to, to show that. And, the other thing I think in this area, it's it's all areas, I guess, but in this D.C. area, we get a lot of historical properties that they want to maintain 
the historical gardens. So if they have to, you know, like we worked on a project at Dumbarton Oaks, which is mm. uh, a historical uh, library connected with Harvard, where they, they had to bring in new utilities and there was no way around it. But all those plants that were in the path of that big uh, pipeline that had to go in there were meticulously mapped and then dug, transported back to our nursery. When the project was done, they were put back in place like it was a big puzzle. So we were recreating that environment, uh, you know, that uh, that they had before, at least to the best of our ability. And again, people don't realize that, you know, you are able to do that. We have the capacity to do that in the the um, horticulture trade to be able to move something and then put it back so that we can still preserve it. Trees and, and plants are also very much like books in a library or, or a museum where they need to be preserved and saved. So it's it's good that you're able to do that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and you know, people are, are less patient than they used to be and they don't necessarily want to take out all these trees and then put in a little tree and wait, you know, 20 years for it. So there's more awareness. I think there's less patience. These developments are putting houses closer together. Uh, We sell a lot of screening trees because one neighbor doesn't want to see the next neighbor, you know, and they want something that's already 20 foot tall. They don't want to put in a three gallon plant and wait for it to to go up. So I think the trend towards larger trees is uh, definitely something we've been seeing and I think we'll definitely continue. And, you know, our experience has been survivability is much better on larger trees. Um, You know, you can't... uh, rip it around by the trunk and drop the ball and everything, you know, it's, they're heavy and, and so they have to be handled carefully and it's a big investment. So people are more likely to remember that they have to be watered and, and cared for. So we just find that the survivability on these larger trees is really much better than what you typically get on the smaller trees as well. Well, uh, with the big tree transplant operation, uh, uh, this is a question for both of you. Do you find yourself talking to your contractors over and over again about one or two specific issues and that maybe they're missing the mark in terms of transplant success? Well, you know, I, I think the main thing for for that is, is the aftercare. Um, that's probably the thing that we, right. we deal with the most. You know, they invest all this money to have the trees either moved or installed. And then I think, you know, it's... Uh, it's like when you buy a puppy, you know, you get a puppy for Christmas and you think, oh, how fun it is. But, you know, that's a that's a long commitment. That's a that's a yeah. 15 year commitment. So, you know, a tree is a long commitment as well. Maybe not 15 years of, of uh, puppy size care, but, you know, first couple of years, that tree needs to be watered. And, you know, once you move it, there's always the chance of, you know, stress bringing in some insects or some diseases and those sorts of things. So I think the most common theme that we're, we're dealing with is aftercare. And we try to do a good job of going back out, visiting these sites and letting customers know, hey, you know, that tree looks a little dry or, or whatever. When we finish a job, we have a little package that we send out and it's got, depending on the customer, it either has a soil probe. If it's a professional, we send a soil probe. If it's a homeowner, we send a kind of a, a moisture meter. Uh, we, send, right. we send a rain gauge and then we send uh, in care instructions. And it's oh, just, I love it. It's just a little reminder that, look, this is a living thing and yeah. this is how you take care of it. We've, you know, we've, we've got to this point. Let's be sure we, we keep this tree alive. So. I, I think that's a fantastic that's idea. Yeah, that's every tree should come with that. Yeah, I, every tree should come with it. And and you know, think about that because you know, watering is is the number one thing that either saves a tree or kills it. Not not having enough or too much or whatever. And for every inch caliper of tree, that's how many years you have to make sure you're maintaining it so that it finally, you know, hooks into the surrounding environment, making sure that the root system's anchoring the tree in. And a lot of people don't realize that. But, you know, just like children, you have a commitment to have a child, you have a commitment to take care of that tree. And uh, people don't realize that. But I think that that's really important that you're doing that for your clients, you know, to really bring that whole message home to them with that packet, which is, that's the first time I've ever heard of Yeah, I love it. That's great. I love it. I think we need to, you need to market that nationally. Yeah. <laughs> I think that we should. And um, 
along with the packet, we also recommend to hire a tree care professional too. If they see any sort of diseases happening, big struggles, we also recommend having a tree care company at the ready if need be. That's good. Do you have a list that you give them of tree care companies or do you have a number that you can call and say, hey, you know, here's a few names for you or how does that work? We do. We work with a lot of the tree companies here, you know, people like Bartlett Trees and Save a Tree and they send us business. We send them business. And it's interesting. And one of the reasons I really wanted to be on the podcast is I think historically nursery people and arborists have not always seen eye to eye. And yet I feel like we have a common goal. And I think it's really important for the nursery people and the arborists to work together. And we've even done programs where we will, when we install a tree, We typically have a one-year warranty. We've extended the warranty to two or even three years if they'll go under contract with a arborist company like Bartlett or somebody like that. Because we know that the tree is being cared for and, you know, it's obviously much less likely to have problems. I think anything we can do to encourage them to work with a professional arborist is good for everybody. Either one of you. When I was in college, I subscribed to American Nurseryman, which I'm pretty sure is no longer around. Does the nursery trade have a national organization? Because the arborists, you know, were well cared for by the ISA. But what are you guys? Yeah, we're members of American Hort. And I think maybe more so now the state organizations seem to be taking a leading role. So like we're members of the Maryland Nursery and Landscape and Greenhouse Association. They're very active, have a lot of field days. And here in Maryland, we have a certification program where you can be a certified professional horticulturalist. Not quite as rigorous as as an ISA, but on staff, we have both ISA arborists and certified professional horticulturalists. You know, so I I think the state organizations have, have maybe picked up some of the slack there. Gotcha. And I always wonder, when we talk about this all the time, Hal and I, is, you know, the Arborist Association should be planting trees as well as taking them down and taking them to the timber mill so that there's a whole, as the gentleman from California said, seed to senescence, the whole idea of being able to maintain. But, you know, I'm I'm surprised that the nursery uh, people are not included in ISA because there could be a whole other division uh, under ISA. And that would bring everybody closer together. And I mean, there there shouldn't be any seams at all or yeah. visual seams. It should be kind of seamless between the nursery profession and an ISA or the arborists because, you know, we're all working for the common good. If it wasn't for the nursery people, the arborists wouldn't have jobs. And that whole idea is, I think, a great one when you're talking about being connected with arborists. Because right now with all the storms that we're having, I always recommend to my clients, have an arborist come out and check your trees every year or every two years. Just check to make sure there's no cracks, no damage to the tree that you can't see. Because that's going to save your tree for the next storm. Right. Do some heavy removal of some of those heavy limbs that may cause some drag during a heavy windstorm. You know, those are the kind of things you think about And as nursery people, when you're pruning the trees and you're sending them out there to their new homes, you take care of them because you know how to balance a tree, how to maintain it in the nursery so that when it gets to its new home, it's going to take off. So that whole transition is is really important, I think. I agree. And I think one of the things that's interesting for us, because we do hold onto our trees longer, you know, up to 10, 11, 12 inch caliber. We think it's super important that pruning and developing the right structure and everything happens early and often. And a lot of nurseries that are maybe selling all their material by the time it's three or four inch don't necessarily see that. You know, we're holding the tree until it's 10 or 11 inch. And at that point, it's an expensive tree and and it better be pretty darn close to perfect. You know, certainly we want a nice central leader and we want, you know, we don't want crossing branches and, you know, we want it to be structurally sound on the farm and then as it goes into somebody's final location. And then like you say, the arborists have to take over from that point and we don't see that tree again often. So the feedback we get from the arborist is really important for us and having that good working relationship, like you said, we have this shared interest. We, we all want trees to get out there 
and thrive. And, you know, that's just an important next step. Well, once it gets out there, is that an, an arborist is taken over? Uh, two weeks ago, I was up in Vermont and had the gift and the blessing of being surrounded by uh, Betula papyrifera, which, you know, I hadn't seen in a decade. Just this thriving forest on top of a section of the Green Mountains made me think about assisted migration. It made me think about species that we don't have here in the Delaware Valley. And obviously, we started the talk earlier this afternoon about sourcing stock from the Pacific Northwest and trends. Any considerations along those lines in terms of what Rupert Nurseries wants to grow as your microclimate changes or in terms of perhaps the markets that you're shipping to specifically like, and I guess this is a question within itself, how far north do you ship your trees? We ship up into New England. So, you know, as far as as Maine, and we even have some customers in Canada and as far south as Texas. So, you know, we, uh, we don't go out west that often, although we have done some out there. We do a lot of specialty pruning projects, espaliers and pleats trees and that sort of thing. And and they kind of have their own demand all over the country, it seems like. But I think we do see that there's definitely climate change that's happening. And then there's there's breeding that's happening that is also expanding the area that trees will go. So and then there's all these little, particularly up the East Coast, there's all these little ocean impacted uh, microclimates where you can, you know, ship trees that you think of as being more Southern type trees way further North than what you would think. So, you know, things like Southern Magnolia, for example, I used to always think, well, Richmond's kind of the cutoff. You don't want to go much North of that with the exception of maybe like a downtown location like Washington, DC. But now, you know, we see, we see hardier varieties being bred and then we see changes in the climate that's pushing those zones way up. You know, I think it's something that we'll, we'll continue to see and we'll continue to see demand for. I don't know where it all ends up, but, you know, I definitely feel the shift. Yeah, yeah. Well, I also think, too, that nurseries in general use trees that are more resilient, period, ones that are larger range. They have a larger growing range because you know that they're tried and true, when you were talking earlier, tried and true species or for cultivars on the species. So I think that that's something to think about. But also, we also have to think about those niche plants, which are good for really hot spots or really cold spots that might not be as big as cellar, but maybe something that can save a location because of that particular nuance of that plant. Yeah, no, that's true. That's why we try to offer a wide selection because I always say for every tree, there's a place and some places are more defined than others, but you know, every tree's got a home somewhere. Ashley, did you have a comment on that? It seemed like you were starting to talk. Yeah, um, I think we're just going to see a wider range, uh, like we've all been talking about, a wider range of trees being offered, especially native trees. I think we're really going to see those trees that used to be more unique and starting to see a higher demand for them. And I think it's going to be twofold. I think it's going to be the need for them. um, But I also think it's going to be people really wanting to get back to um, the natives, their roots. We see that trend everywhere and almost every um, aspect of our lives, people wanting to get back to just what's natural, what's native. And I think we're going to see a broader selection of those more unique native trees. Very cool. Well, this is probably a good segue or transition to ask both of you, Kelly, what is your favorite tree? And Ashley, what is yours? Uh, Mine is white oak. I grew up in Virginia and some of these Civil War era white oaks were growing around my uncle's cattle farm. And I can just remember seeing them and staring at them and the long horizontal branches and, um, you know, thinking of the story where the people lived in the tree. Yeah, (laughs) I can remember thinking of some of those white oaks being capable of that type of thing. So it's not a great tree for a nursery to grow. They're slow and they're challenging. We do grow them. 
Um, but yeah, White White Oak, uh, Quercus Alba. That's my favorite. Love it. And then how about you, Ashley? Yes, my favorite tree is Liriodendron tulipifera, the tulip poplar. I love that tree. It was uh, one of my favorites back when I was with the Urban Forestry Division. It just really caught my attention and caught my heart at that time. And I have just continued to love that tree. The flowers are so unique, you know, being those magnolia, beautiful magnolia flowers. And the leaves are also just equally unique. They're huge and the leaf shapes stands out and it's a fast grower and they all have so much character. I could go on and on talking about them. Um, but I love Liriodendron tulipifera. Very cool. Very cool. It's easy to see how much uh, Ashley loves trees, isn't it? She, well, both <laughs> yeah. you guys. she gets excited. Yeah, you both do. <laughs> You're both passionate about in different ways, which is really great. That's a good tribute to Rupert Nurseries and having diversity within their staff. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's a great it's a great <laughs> team here. We're lucky to come to work every day with a really good team. I can tell you both have big smiles on your faces, and that's not always the case with certain institutions, <laughs> especially on a Friday afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we certainly appreciate that you were able to come on to the podcast and share your knowledge and give our listeners additional information, maybe things that they didn't even know, which is part of why we do what we do. We learn from the people that we have on and we want to just keep learning. So we'll keep an eye out for your um, Instagrams. I love watching those. Yes, I love yours too. Oh my goodness, the information that you share is needed. It's amazing. And um, I just want to say thank you so much for having us today. It's been really fun. And I hope you have continued success with your nurseries. I'll see you sometime. We will. Thank you. Thank you both. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Oh, oh, oh.